0: Life is a sine curve. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, until the end. The only thing you can know at the bottom of the curve is you're coming back up. The only thing you can know at the top of the curve is you're coming down.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. David Bradley says research shows the way a person responds to defeat determines how happy they may be later in life. He owns Atlantic Media and was instrumental in freeing a man who experienced unimaginable defeat, a freelance journalist captured by extremists in Syria. On the show today, we hear from him and David Bradley in an episode we're calling, How I Learned to Cope with Disappointment, Setback, and Crisis. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In 2014, American journalist Theo Padnos was released from captivity. The al-Nusra Front, an affiliate of al-Qaeda, imprisoned him for 660 days in Syria.
2: The most probably excruciating hours of imprisonment with al-Qaeda or ISIS is when you know they've, they've tortured you once and you know they're gonna do it again.
1: After his release, Padnos struggled to recognize reality. He thought he was dreaming on a visit to a lake in Montreal. He couldn't comprehend the beauty and freedom after months of struggling just to live. Unbelievably, David Bradley says, Padnos came back with grace, forgiveness, and generosity. He's an example of someone whose adaptivity during an extreme low in life may help later on. How do you respond to lows in life, like the death of a loved one, a career stumble, or bankruptcy? Bradley discusses his own life struggles, talks with Padnos about his, and brings in Andrea Mitchell, who covers foreign affairs for NBC News. Here's Bradley.
0: I'm going to introduce you uh, in a moment to someone named Theo Padnos. I'll tell you his story, um, and then someone you already know and probably love, Andrea Mitchell. Um, They'll come up as well, Um, and we'll do a three-way conversation. But I'm going to steal the first 16 minutes and do an earnest run. Um, so let me start by talking about Theo. Um, picture Theo being raised, at least in part, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, young, boyish, free-spirited. Um, <clears> he <throat> becomes a freelance journalist, which is a lifestyle that works for him. Fluent in French, German, Russian, and Arabic. But it is the Arabic that got him in trouble. So in the fall of 2012, Theo decided to... Uh, go to the Mid-East to cover the gathering chaos inside of Syria. He traveled to a border town, Antakya, which is the, it's a Turkish town, it's the crossing point for jihadists and smugglers and the few Western journalists braving their way into the country. Soon after his arrival, he met three young guys who were making their living by smuggling goods into Syria and they asked him if um, he wanted to go in with them uh, and he said sure, faithfully he accepted. So that night, October 20th of 2012, um, he and his three guides slipped through the barbed wire fence at the frontier of uh, Syria, into Syria, and went to the front uh, to an old, small, abandoned house. I'm going to read to you a moment of Theo's own account of what happened. The next morning, I helped the young men straighten up the place, cleaning the floors and arranging the pillows in an orderly row on rubber mattresses. They sat me down in front of a video camera and asked me to interview one of them, Abu Asama. When we were done, the cameraman smiled, walked across the room, and kicked me in the face. His friends held me down. Abu Asama stomped on my chest and then called out for handcuffs. Someone else bound my feet. The cameraman aimed a pistol at my head. We're from Al-Qaeda, Abu Asama said, grinning. For the next... 22 months, Theo was added to the ranks of Westerners who were held by al-Nusra, which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, traveling across rebel-held Syria from prison to prison. For a time, Theo was beaten every day with a wooden club, with a PVC pipe, with the butts of uh, Kalashnikov rifles. He was soaked down in water and then electrocuted. He was blindfolded handcuffed and put into a metal box for 45 days. In total, 660 days in the hands of Al-Qaeda, losing hope that it would ever end. Meanwhile, back in the States, the most unlikely search party had formed. Uh, A few of my colleagues at The Atlantic, uh, Emily Lenzner, who's here, um, is one of them, uh, and I had been searching for hostages in the Middle East for a couple of years, and we came across Theo's mom and cousins who were searching for Theo, um, and we all formed uh, together to decide to do this work. If you're looking for hostages in the Middle East, you eventually end up in the Arab Emirate of Qatar. So uh, one uh, June evening in 2014, I found myself in the lobby of the St. Regis Hotel in Doha, uh, waiting to be called up to the suite of a man named Ghanem Al-Khubazi. Uh, al is the head of security, it's the FBI, CIA for Qatar. The call actually didn't come till one in the morning, but we get called up, very gracious man, and I give him five pieces of paper. Each of them is a flyer with a photograph and a little description of the five kids we were looking for. He goes through the five and he gets to one, Theo's, and he stops and he says, "Um, this one, I know about this one, I can save him. Will I do it? It's a curious question, will I do it? Yes, I'll do it, I'll do it for the mother. Five days after the beheading of Jim Foley, I begin to get text messages from uh, Al Kubesi telling me that Theo's release is coming soon. And then on Sunday, uh, August 24th, 2014, I get an email from, uh, not email, text message from uh, Kubesi which says uh, his release is imminent. And then I get another one, which is the thumbs up emoji with the word done. So what do you make of Theo's story? In the late 1930s, a dime store magnate, W.T. Grant, uh, gave a large sum of money to Harvard College to do a study on 268 Harvard undergrads. Back then, it was all guys. They were in the classes of 1942, 43, and 44. Um, They ran them through physical exams doctor, run physical exams, eight psychiatric exams. Then they hired social workers to interview the friends of the individual students and to interview the students themselves. And then Grant even paid for these social workers to fly to the hometowns and interview the families of these these young men. It was what we would think of today as a, just an extraordinary 360. But what's remarkable is that Harvard found the funding to continue the study on the same group of 268, and it's going on today. Most of the men have uh, have passed, but there are some now still in their mid-90s who participate in this study as they have for every five years. This is the longest latitudinal study in the world. So knowing the detail of each man, Uh, across his whole lifetime. The researchers could do something interesting. They could look at the men and say, well, who ended up in his 70s or 80s happy and healthy? That's the win-win box, to end up happy and healthy. Then they could go back through 70 years of data, huge personal data, and say, can we find what are the predictors of health and happiness later in life? and they surfaced three of them. I'm not gonna go through all three, it's a a longer talk to do, but I wanna talk about one, which is what the study calls adaptivity. The Harvard researchers focused acutely on how the individual subjects responded to setbacks and disappointments in their lives. So tracking each boy from college to death, they knew everything. They knew every failed romance, every failed marriage, every death of a child, or career stumble, stumble or bankruptcy. They studied all the disappointments, and then they studied, and how did the person respond? They came up with a taxonomy, four different level of vers- levels of response to setback. So the worst level of response is bitterness, feelings of betrayal, pan- paranoia, withdrawal. The high end, the best response is um, self-deprecation, humility, Amusement, sense of humor, all the supple qualities that could be brought to bear when there's a defeat. It seems too particular to be true, but one of the three largest predictors of how these kids then became men ended up in life as happy or healthy was how did they respond to whatever the setbacks. And the most remarkable finding in the study, every one of the 268 suffered setbacks and so of all of we. Um, I gave this uh, talk, a version of it a few weeks ago, um, uh, to a group of college students or graduate students. Um, All I could think about is they can't know what's ahead, Um, but when I see most of you, um, you you know this already. So we've reached the core of what I wanna talk about. That's my frame that life is a sine curve. It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, on and on and on, until the end, until there, there is no more. The only thing you can know at the bottom of the curve is you're coming back up. The only thing you can know at the top of the curve is you're coming down. But the top of the curve and the bottom of the curve are very different places. At the top of the curve, what you want to do is deploy Uh, humility, impersonalization of success, the kind of qualities that you would have on display if you knew you were coming down. The bottom of the curve is just wicked. Just can be terrifically hard. There are gonna be moments in everyone's life when some large thing happens. Uh, A marriage goes wrong, uh, a sickness for a child, A career that plateaus at a lower level than you had intended. Existential concerns that set in 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 one's 40s. I have a friend who says, life can just break your heart. I wish I could spare everybody the bottom of the curve, uh, but what I can do is just talk about a little bit of learnings that come from the bottom. So the central lesson for me about the bottom of the curve is not to derail. This is no time to radically rethink your life. It's no time to change your career, to move to Vermont, to open a B&B, to leave your family, to start a whole, whole new group. The temptation when you're at the bottom is to change your circumstances, hoping it changes the feeling of being at the bottom. It just never works. I think bad hours have to be endured. So how do you get through them? This is going to be the only part that's uh, confessional at all, and it's You know, everybody's own setbacks are interesting to them and infinitely uninteresting to everyone else. But I happen to have the podium and you don't, so. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, When I was in my mid-30s, after I'd been married for three years, my wife uh, was pregnant with our first child, I lost my voice. It just disappeared, aphonic, um, and we went everywhere um, trying to find somebody who could diagnose it and then bring it back with, to, to no avail. We moved out of our house, thinking I might be allergic to to something. Um, lots of testing. Uh, eventually, we we found somebody who who brought back my voice, uh, altered, not not as strong, uh, but then ten years later it disappeared again, and this time was wickedly harder. When it left, pain set in. I don't mean to say that it was hang on the ceiling kind of pain. I could endure it, but if you said, okay, this is the rest of your life, I'd say you know, I like my life, but so one of the things um, you learn in the chronic pain field, many of you may know this already, is um, that if you're in a hard hour and you go, I don't think I can do this the rest of my life, you shorten the time frame, and you say, well, can I do it this year? And if the answer is no, you say, well, can I do it today? Or literally down to the next five minutes. You find the time frame you can cope with, and then within that time frame, you just Do your duty. You do the thing you're supposed to do. If you have a job, you get up and you do your job. If you have a family, you're responsible to your family, or friends, or parents, um, or acts of kindness. Whatever is your duty to do, just do it day by burdensome day until the curve begins to turn. There's one last thing to be said about the bottom of the curve. Um, That is that um, nothing foundationally good happens at the top. Um, You can have corruption of character, but all um, growth in character, change in nature and disposition is always a bottom of the the curve kind of affair. There is a blessing that is had in there um, if you you pull it out. Doesn't make it any easier going through it, but it presents this life irony possibility that all of high character is produced in the in the low moments. So what became of Theo? Um, well, 20 of us in Washington hadn't met Theo, so we asked him if he'd come by for dinner at our house, um, so that we could we could meet him and interview him. We placed him at the end of the table, and then for almost three hours, we just grilled Theo on what's it like to be held by Al Nusra for 660 days, um, and then he left, and we all talked about him. What you know, what you do after every dinner party, you know the. Um, <laughs> The unobvious observation all of us had, that was that this experience had not broken him. He was gracious, he was forgiving, more forgiving for the foot soldiers, including the people that actually tortured him than he was of the commanders, but still he was forgiving. There was just a grace and a generosity about the man that you would not expect of someone who had just gone through that, that period. In this sense, Theo is a poster boy for the Harvard study. He's an astonishing best practice in how you handle the hard hour. So I want to introduce you to to Theo, um, and then I want to turn over the leadership of the conversation to Andrea Mitchell.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, How I Learned to Cope with Disappointment, Setback, and Crisis. Another episode you should check out is The Choices That Create Your Life. New York Times columnist David Brooks explores how to cut out the noise and seek a life well lived.
3: We happen to live in a community that makes commitment-making hard. We live in a society filled with decommitment devices, the internet, our watches, our phones. How do you make a lifelong commitment if you can't keep
0: your attention for more than 30 seconds on one thing?
1: Brooks talks about his research of people who radiate an inner light. What did they do to reach higher levels of happiness? Find it by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts, or find a link to the episode in our show notes. Here's Andrea Mitchell.
4: David, I think you've you've established the perfect predicate. I was reading about the grant study, and... You framed it. So to Theo, whose narrative we followed before today, I hadn't met you, but I felt that I, I knew about you. I didn't know you. and I don't know you. But what is it in your most extreme circumstances at the bottom of the sine curve? What is it that kept your humanity and your spirit? I, I have
2: to say, I don't think that my experience, I think that every person in this audience subjected to the same um, conditions and same factors would go undergo the same psychological process. They have a very deliberate um, process or routine that they, to which they subject their prisoners. The idea is that you are meant to die to your old self, to renounce and repudiate everything that you have learned in the secular world, and to wake up again in alignment with God. Now, um, they, they told me, you know, from the beginning, I was filth, I was an animal, I was, um, I was a dog, I was a rat, I was like, Gerasim, um, that's the, their word for germs. And they, Gerasim, they, they use that expression for all Americans. Um, okay, so I, I basically, this is, a, this is not a, to, to my credit, psychologically speaking, but I accepted their um, understanding of me and for a while, you know, for a long time, I was that way in regards to them. I'm like, I, I, I was so frightened of them. And so um, I just had, had so little sense of self when I was in their control. And at a certain point, all of that just went away. And I'm just, I'm just like, you people, I, I don't believe your nonsense anymore. At that point, I started to regain some strength. And I started to write, and I started to write about them. And, um, you know, so I went on my own little psychological voyage, but I don't think, you know, when I was in prison, through the pain and the suffering and the isolation and the terror, I went on that voyage, but I don't think that that voyage is, um, is characteristic of me. I think it's characteristic of humankind, that you, um, you know, you know who you are. And, um, you know, I know I'm not filth or I know I'm not a germ. They were trying to make me believe I'm something I'm not. So, um, you know, I went on a voyage that is like a voyage of the spirit. But I think everyone would go on such a thing if they were in that circumstance. you know, hopefully you would come out okay. Like
4: I, I came out okay. Well, I think mm-hmm. every one of us, if I can speak for this audience, is thinking, no, I don't think I would <laughs> uh, survive that uh, psychologically. But was was the isolation as difficult? you, or what filled your well, intellectual life, your uh, emotional life during the isolation?
2: I mean, the the most probably excruciating hours of the of the um, of imprisonment with Al Qaeda or ISIS is when you know they've they've tortured you once and you know they're going to do it again. They would tell me after the first session, "We're coming tomorrow. tomorrow's going to be worse." You know, and this could go on for months. Um, you don't know when they're going to come back again. Sometimes they'd leave me for a week and then come after a week. And the prisoner next door, you know, they'd come for him every day. So, um, you know, uh, I I gave up. I I can lay no claim to psychological fortitude because I really did not think I was going to emerge from the bottom of the sine curve. I was like, this is it, and then they're going to kill me. I'm never going back up.
4: Um, So um, what was your question? (laughs) Well, what... What in those periods, especially the isolation, what occupied your mind? Oh, it was um, it was, you know, um, after
2: a while, I got used to it. They gave me a Quran; I could read the Quran. Um, there were some ISIS prisoners in the cells next door, and I could tap on the thing and say, "Salam alaikum Sheik." How are you? You know, and I had a nice relationship with my ISIS guys in there. and all the other prisoners, I had a nice relationship with them. But there were times when I could have no communication with anybody. Um, and they would just come in and like kick me and throw my food on the floor. And um, I, I didn't, I, I felt that what was, that they had prepared for me a, a long, long descent into giving up on life and then they were gonna kill me. Only when I psychologically gave up on it on my own. So I was like, I'm not gonna let them, I'll do it myself.
0: Tell about the lake in Montreal.
2: <laughs> okay, I mean there were times when I said, you know, if, if they ever let me out of this, I will, um, you know, I'll go home and I'll, uh, I'll get married and I'll have a family and I'll go skating and my wife will bring me and the kids chocolate and, and you know, it would be just gorgeous, but that seems so unlikely. And the, the, the thing that was realistic and real to me was torture and scorpions and ISIS and I'm like, this is my reality and I'll never, never come to Montreal. So when I finally did get to Montreal, I'm like, this isn't real. This is just astonishing. The most simplest little things in the world um, a lake, a bird, um, you know, flying over the lake, it brought me to tears. Well, I could not stop crying. Like the first couple of months when I came back, I was in tears all the time. And I think my mom thought I was like, you know, unstable in a way. when I met the folies, for instance. I had seen James Foley on TV when I was in captivity. I'd seen the mom and dad on TV when I was in captivity. They brought me out and showed me. So when I saw them in real life, I just couldn't stop crying. It was very impolite, really. I should've like, it. Did
4: did you, did you know of the efforts to rescue you? I had no idea. This is another thing that just
2: moved me so much. I, I had no idea. I mean, David uh, Bradley in this capacity was totally a volunteer, like no, you just, out of the goodness of your heart, you did this, and it never occurred to me. I thought, maybe the U.S. government, but it never occurred to me that some civic-minded person, and when I came back, I thought, my God, we are such good people. How, I mean, where do we get this goodness in ourselves that a citizen will emerge and, and deploy the resources of his company on my behalf? I, I was in this psychological state where I was thinking, I'm the dummy. I, I was dumb. But I, w- I was really blaming myself for getting myself in all this trouble. And I couldn't believe that uh, a person who's like successful and doesn't screw up would come and rescue a screw up. Well, you know?
4: And I, I was sitting in front of Pepke on July 4th, 2014, when David Bradley, with maps and graphs and charts that he'd gotten from his contacts and all of the nexus of connections he was working this so intensively and talking to me about who I knew in the State Department well, or to in be the fair, agencies. You were
0: hammering the State Department on this too. This was a uh, all-media team effort.
4: The, there was a collective effort, and uh, we should speak about Gutter uh, and Al Nusra and the connections, because for all of the criticism right now, I mean, it's a very complicated situation in the Gulf as we know, and. Um, I think through naivete or whatever, there have been, uh, an, as a result, in part of the Riyadh summit, there is a shift in U.S. policy that Secretaries Tillerson and Mattis have tried so far unsuccessfully to disentangle and an isolation of Qatar by the Saudis and the UAE and other allies. And it's, it's been a long simmering rivalry dispute in the region that has been exacerbated by the President's Summit and other empowerment and the succession uh, that's taken place. So, but the cutteries the were, uh, to my understanding, central to the context of They were the research. only
0: effective party in the end.
4: Um, so David, the wisdom that you've achieved with all of your success and this self-knowledge of how to handle adversity because because people externally view you as this extraordinarily successful entrepreneurial, intellectual. Flesh it out a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Renaissance man, (laughs) convener of intellects and kind soul. Thank you. Um, But your ability to deal with difficulties in life is, is profound.
0: You know what, I've, I have a sense, I didn't have this sense when I was talking to uh, graduate students, but I have a sense here that virtually everybody knows exactly everything I said. Not everybody's put it together in a 15-minute story. Um, but the, can I, do you mind if I do a quick show of hands? No. How many have suffered some hard hour or some large setback in life? Yeah. It's, it's just the human condition.
4: And... I mean, for many of us, it's professional. I mean, it's no secret. I've written about it. It's no secret that I live in the world of network television. Uh, it can be brutal. Do a little of your story. Well, well not the worst you know, I mean, I've, I've been at NBC News 39 years, which is in itself kind of crazy. <laughs> but there have been you know, missed opportunities and promotions, and at first, women did not have very many opportunities. And I've been passed over, and there were times when jobs were promised and not delivered, and um, I learned of one, um, one removal from an assignment when I was driving to the gym at 6.30 in the morning on Nebraska Avenue. What does removal from an assignment mean? Um, well, I think the exact line, how could I remember it? It was 1994, and I was reading the Washington Post TV column and driving down Nebraska Avenue at the same time. <coughs> It's sort of hard to explain. That's not texting, that's reading a newspaper. <laughs> and I think the column by um, John Carmody, the, the former columnist at the Washington Post, was, who is going to have the guts to tell Andrea Mitchell she's being removed from the White House beat? And was that true? That's a verbatim. Oh, yes, it was very true. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it turned out, I began covering foreign policy full time. I traveled the world. I had a camera crew and producer. Went to Vietnam for weeks at a time. Went to Haiti, covered the wars. Um, I learned more about the world and myself through that setback, quote unquote, than anything that's happened to me before or since.
0: How did you handle the hard hour? So you're reading the paper, then what? What are the next few weeks?
4: Difficult, a lot of tears, um, the support of my loving spouse, then not my spouse, but always loving. And
0: um, And did you go to work? Oh, yeah. Just every day?
4: And I decided to make a virtue out of it and be as helpful as I could to my successor and yeah. just... Um, Announce to the world how excited I was about the change. Embrace it. Yeah. I think that the common thread here is that the human condition is one that in the most extreme cases uh, of suffering um, and vulnerability requires us to find our inner strength and our soul and whatever spiritual... Resources that we have you know, wh- to overcome. Wh-
2: it. When I was in, under their control, I was so um, I had so little ability to make choices that things happened to me. Like um, the one important thing that happened to me in my imprisonment is that I decided that um, they were taking me to a place that was so dark and so I felt like nobody has been here, but the other prisoners have been, and so I, I wanted to be um, close to them. And when I came out, I found out that David had organized this, uh, you know, a real like um, corporate movement on behalf of the remaining ISIS prisoners. And to me, that was like the meaning of my life at that point. I had to assist and help and do something because of this experience I had in the bottom of the sine curve, knowing that these people had had, were were in this really really dark space, and I had to help them. So I, uh, you you know, you, you. Something in you decided that you wanted to ally yourself with people in that condition, and I—I I, I mean, I was just so so moved by it. I, I knew that that's what I had to do, and I don't know. For me, that wasn't a comp- it wasn't a deliberate choice. I didn't say, "Oh, consciously, I shall do this." Unconsciously, I said, "I won't do anything but this." Uh, this helping of the you know, victims. It's really
0: surprising here. There's, there's a moral lesson here, but. Um, Theo began to know the commander of al-Nusra. In fact, he began to travel in the front seat with the commander as the commander's world got narrowed down as ISIS was coming in on al-Nusra. So Theo figured out how to stay in touch with these people. And as we've been looking for a young man named Austin Tice, who's held probably by the uh, Assad regime. Um, Theo's been you know email, I don't know, email, Facebook, whatever.
2: Twitter. They're on Twitter all the time. I mean, if you want to contact al-Qaeda, just dial them in on Twitter. And, in fact, they won't write back to you because they don't trust you. But they know me, and they do respond to me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, they have prisoners from other <coughs> countries at the moment. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but it, not, not, from, not any uh, from the U.S. I'm aware of. But I want to help those other, other people get out of this horrible situation. And, and, of course, they won't do anything. The Qataris can help and have been helping. So um, I support uh, the beautiful nation of Qatar. I
4: love them. Well, Austin Tice, um, his parents spoke yesterday on our network, and um, have great faith that he is alive, and that there is hope, and I think that is what keeps them going. And I had interviewed them before, and and um, a number of the other parents as well over the years. The I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm huge
2: supporters of the Tices. I wish. I think that the. Um, that this Austin Tice is a journalist who disappeared maybe a month before I disappeared. He disappeared next to Damascus in August of 2012 uh, and he hasn't been heard from since. And in my view, we could get to the bottom of this mystery in a heartbeat by um, opening up relations with the Syrian regime, which is in everybody's interest in in my view uh, because they have so much understanding of the religious, tides and dynamics and undercurrents that exist in that country. They have files on all the bad guys. They have lived with them in their prisons. They know these people. Uh, they could certainly shed light on this Austin-Tie situation. If only we would agree to talk with them. But, um, you know, a diplomatic convention, you, about which a subject about which you know much more than I do, um, prohibits them from doing this. I, I don't see why. I think we should... We should. It's in our interest to um, resolve this ISIS situation, the Jabhat al-Nusra situation. They have an entire second Islamic state about which we are hearing nothing in the northwestern corner of Syria now. Um, they have the Raqqa situation. They got all kinds of uh, just lunatics from all over the world flooding into Syria in order to get a handle on the situation. We ought to. Um, have better relations with the secret services in Syria. Otherwise, those young men who are, whose psychology is currently being formed and changed in, that, um, in Syria are going to turn up, as they have been turning up, with machine guns in the cafes in Paris. We don't want this. So we need to have better relations. We can solve the Austin issue. And we can, we can get a better handle on those young men who are traveling through Greece um, into Europe and coming with guns and with a very strange and warped and dangerous psychology. Just my pitch for better relations with the Syrian government.
1: You are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Discover more about today's episode and explore links to news stories about Padnos' captivity on our website. Our latest blog includes photos of today's featured talk, links, and information on how to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go. Find it all at AspenIdeas.org. Back to the show. Andrea Mitchell begins by asking Theo Padnos a question. In
4: in terms of your own personal development now, what drives you now, helping your brothers who are still being held? I mean, the...
2: the, um Islamists, let's just call them that, let's say the, yeah, the Islamists are oppressing it. maybe they govern something like 8 million people in between, in between most of which they're mostly finished with, but all of Anbar province, all the way uh, to the um, northwesternmost corner of Syria, maybe let's say 6 million people are under their control at the moment and all of those people to some degree are, are victims and, um, you know, it's a psychological victimization thing, you wouldn't want to be their wife the wives of these big men with the beards. You wouldn't want to be their child. So I would like to help the world better understand what those people are going through. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a social phenomenon. It goes by many names. Jabhat al-Nusra, Jabhat uh, also ISIS. It's the same single social phenomenon of religious enthusiasm that uh, empowers the big men with the big beards and the big guns, and the victims are the women and the children, and, and also people who just aren't that interested in Islam. So I would like to, my passion is to uh, dramatize this and help us all understand how these people get so much power and how we can diffuse this power peacefully without killing everybody, completely against the bombing. Um, yeah, but there is a way to talk to these guys. And, you know, I, I bonded with the big men with the beards. These guys, like, I talked to them on Twitter. You can talk to them, and you can walk them back from the craziness. Other, uh, the alternative is just to bomb them forever, and they will bomb us forever, and we don't want that.
4: And if you could speak for a moment about your original motivation as a freelance journalist in My, wanting to connect with the Free Syrian Army. Right.
2: Well, the freelance journalist, as you may know, is not a high-budget affair. And <laughs> I, had, um, I met some fixers in Antakya, and one guy said, I will take you into Syria for 50 bucks. The other guy said, 20 bucks. These guys said, zero bucks. I go, zero? I'll go with you guys. So that's how I got myself in trouble. But listen, I had been living in—I um, had been living in Syria, you know, before the war. I speak Arabic. I had ridden my bike all around those rebel areas. I'm like this. The other reporters don't know anything. I know. I know how to ride my bike through these areas. They love me. I chat with them, drink tea. I'll have no problem when I go in. You know, that was my stupidity when I.
0: When did uh, you begin to sense that this was a bad decision? Was it really um, that moment with the camera, or were you already? Yes,
2: in? this is an interesting question. Um, that the the society has made this spiritual voyage into a very dangerous place, but there is no marker on the ground when you cross that into that dangerous place. You don't see it until it's much too late. I didn't know what was going on until they were hitting me in the face. Till I heard somebody say Kalabsha, that means "bring the handcuffs." "Shibad kalabsha. When them said this, "Where's the pistol?" Then I'm like, "This isn't good." But uh, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh,
0: uh, there, How many there, of you uh, are taking notes? I think <laughs> we want to get this down. For- <laughs>
2: No, the, uh, it's, it's a very invisible and hard to detect change, and by the time you
4: notice it, it's too late. I, I know it now, obviously, but it's too late. I think you've inspired a lot of questions from the audience, so we have microphones, and I want to engage all of you. Yes, sir.
0: Hello. I think I can speak for everyone. My name's Zachary. Uh, that I don't think any of us can conceptualize what you've endured and and thank you and and thank you for getting them back for us. When you talked about talking with the men with the big beards and the big guns, about talking them back from the edge versus just continual bombing, what would you say to them? How would you do that? What would the approach be?
2: Um, This is a good question. It's a very important question. We have to know what they want. I mean, um, what, what, what they want is control over their wives and their kids and some of the natural resources. I don't see why we can't give that to them. You know, they believe the natural resources were supplied by God for them. They believe the Shia and the Alawites have come in from Damascus and gone out to the oil producing regions in, in the eastern part of Syria, that's De Dezor, and have stolen their God-given birthright. So I think that we should put the, they should have control of the natural resources. And while it's not a great human rights situation, for the wives and the kids, are we going to risk our own people? Are we going to risk like? A, are we going to keep bombing them?
0: Would you let ISIS keep its caliphate?
2: Um, they need to be put in a box. You know, they need to have bor- very impenetrable borders on all sides. At the moment, they have no borders. They have this invisible psychological thing that I just walked across without being aware at all. Um, so they need to be in a box. They can't come out and get us. But um,
0: can they not be talked back off the cliff once mean, the commanders are there? They-,
2: they can be distracted. You know, they have, they, they these same people have lived um, in peace amongst the Shia, amongst with Christians for generations. There's no reason why they can't go back to that state. But uh, we need to stop sending them arms. They're incredibly dangerous when these, when they get the tow missile. I mean, we have this train and equip program that uh, the Obama people were very, very keen on, and it's still in existence as far as as far as I know. Why are we sending these people that are preparing a genocide against the minorities? Why are we helping the genociders by sending them tow missiles? I don't understand. The first thing we have to do is stop the armament shipments. It's just, it's really, uh, it's it's a it's a suicidal missile for <laughs> it's dangerous for our own well-being, dangerous for the society of Syria, and it's just the, completely the Everside. wrong thing to do.
0: A yeah. side note on that, um, I, I just made a practice of, and still to this day, I don't do anything without getting sign-off from the West Wing or uh, from the FBI. Um, and so every time I went to Qatar, uh, I got permission, and every time I went to get permission, they would say, we want you to say, don't pay ransom. Um, the U.S. government doesn't want you to pay ransom. It's illegal for us as citizens to ask. So I was uh, doing my, it's almost like the Miranda rights, but I was doing doing that with this head of security the first time I met him. Um, And he said, uh, David, we don't have to pay ransom uh, to these people. He qualified ISIS, I'm going to put that aside for a second. He said, we've been funding these people who are fighting Assad from the very beginning. You think there's this group here I can tell you that group stands for a few hours and then the brother moves over to this group um, and then that group disbands and they're all the same people. We know their families, we know uh, the, men, the young men. Um, he also said something particularly interesting which never struck the US, the West Wing as interesting, which he said, if you want us to hive off a group uh, that will, um, we can't get them to be pro us but we can get them to be, uh, Uh, not, their hostilities are inward, not outward, uh, to fight the regime. We can do this. We can break up these groups. But the idea that the United States can choose which people it wants to support and fund them um, uh, is, they would call it a fool's errand. The one exception, he said, was ISIS. He said, we, cut our we can't deal with them. They're insane. Um, They're horrifically dangerous, I think he would say, Theo, you have to wipe them out.
2: I mean, you can, listen, the, the um, wiping them out, I, I, I'm in touch with some of these people, and I know they're not in Raqqa any longer. Um, in order to wipe them out, you have to kill so many civilians that you'll, remember the Stanley McChrystal math, if you have 10 insurgents and you kill two, you don't get eight, you get 20. Um, the, m- military force, I think um, compounds the problem, so I'm all for Some of these people, I completely agree. I know better than you know just how sinister and wicked and awful they are. Um, and if they if they could be assassinated, you know how the is, the Israeli government takes them out one by one. Okay, I'm for that. I'm totally against capital punishment. It's a violation of all my principles, everything I believe in. But yes, I believe in that. Okay, fine. However, <laughs> there's a much there's a much um, it's it's such a wide sociological phenomenon that it cannot be cured with bombs
4: and the whole issue of ransom which the folies have invaded against uh, the prohibition i mean the europe the europeans have gotten the italians the french and others have gotten yeah. away from isis where the american hostages have We're been killed, killed.
2: Um, the, yeah, the the fact is that uh, we are high value prisoners in the, in that environment mm-hmm. and even if it you know, they, 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 ang- they believe that we are the head of the conspiracy, global conspiracy. Our agents are the English, the French, and uh, the Jordanians, and all of our little um, puppet dictators in the Middle East. We all conspire against the simple people of the Middle East, the, the Sunni Muslims. And the head of the conspiracy is the U.S., and as the, they thought I was a CIA agent, so I was like the brain within the brain of the conspiracy against the good people of the Muslims. So they had to get me. I mean, I think the, the reason why I say that is it's easier for the, for the um, Europeans to pay because it's like they're not eliminating the brain. When they kill an American, they go, good, good we're eliminating some of the brain. We're in a dangerous position because they think we're such an enemy.
4: Uh, we have a question up here.
1: Theo, when you go to bed, are there some nights that you relive the nightmare? If so, how do you deal with it? And David, what made you take this cause? What was that turning point that said, this is a cause I want to take on?
2: Um, I, I, when I first came back, I had some dreams that I was, I was going. When I woke up, I would wake up in a prison cell again. And those were disturbing dreams, but they went away. And now I sleep like a baby.
4: <laughs> and David, what inspired you to get involved?
0: We had a uh, freelance journalist, none of us knew. Uh, We had spent $500 buying five pieces from her, which goes to the economics of freelancing. Uh, (laughs) And she disappeared in Syria, uh, not in Syria, in um, Libya. Um, And so we were working to uh, get her out. And when she came out, three others came out. Uh, One of them was Jim Foley. Uh, I had gotten to know uh, Mr. and Mrs. Foley when we were all searching together inside Libya. And so it took us six weeks in Libya, and when their son disappeared, I, and Mrs. Foley and I spoke, I just assumed I was signing up for the, another six-week uh, engagement. Um, there's just there's no. I don't mean this in a false modesty sense, I mean this like, genuinely. There's no self-sacrifice here. This is fascinating work, takes you to really interesting places. We all look for like, is there any one thing we can say we did that was good? You know, Theo's my thing, I've banked, I'm up to, I've got two actually now.
2: Hi David, you mentioned adaptability as one of the three traits that emerged from the Harvard study. Could you just touch briefly on the other two?
0: Sure. Um, So the, uh, remember it's all guys. Um, So uh, the number one one is the ability to form relationships. Um, Not all guys are are gifted at that. Um, And so you know what the biggest predictor of uh, whether you, in the relationship sphere of whether you would be happy and healthy later on was not the quality of your marriage. It was were you close to your siblings? Odd, it's sort of it's awfully particular. Uh, but people who were able to form relationships, even if they didn't have relationships in the 70s and 80s, were, were happier. Uh, the second is, it just sounds so unlikely, but my wife and I have actually organized a little bit around it. It's called generativity. It is the um, practice of having relationships with the next generation down. Um, It can be your children, but it can also be other people. Um, I don't know why that's a predictor, but that is something we can organize around. And there's in the study itself, this is lovely, it wasn't a footnote, but it's got a footnote kind of feel to it, which is um, when we are old and we have, our children there, let's say it's our children or people who are young people we know who are tending to One, Let's say I'm living in my son's uh, home um, and I'm completely dependent, financially dependent, socially dependent, um, and my son comes home from work and comes up and says, hi, dad, how was your day? Um, My job is to uh, support him. So the whole posture is, how was your day? What can I do for you? Is there anything I can help with? Um, and the way they refer to this is um, biology is always intended to flow downhill. We are intended to love more and take care of more the next generation down than they do upwards. And we all kind of know, know that from our own experience. That's the stuff of happiness later on. So uh, David, David argued earlier that ISIS is so dangerous the only solution is to wipe them out, and Theo, you said you disagreed. And my question, Andrea, for you or Theo, either one of you, if, if they're not going to be wiped out, what would you propose that would be meaningful to deal with the threat of ISIS that would be effective?
2: That would be effective for them? I mean, first of all, they're not going to be wiped out because they're all blending back into the civilian population now. They have been doing this for hundreds of years. Whenever the threat comes, they go out to the village, they shave the beard, they do whatever it takes to blend in. Um, I mean, I think the the original cause of the um, of the problem is an economic thing. There's just a there's a huge like economic disparity between the poor people in the east, where the oil is, and the rich um, uh, apparatchiks in Damascus who drive Mercedes and uh, lord it. And they, they you know they um, are relatively secular class. These uh, Alawites, they're not that interested in uh, in God and meanwhile they have all the cash. So there has to be some kind of reconstruction of civilian infrastructure, and a pro- provision of like schools and universities and a, and a viable economic future for the young people. It's a vast, vast, vast investment of billions of dollars into the infrastructure of the place, but yes, it, that, will, that it eventually will diffuse the rage and the anger you know, it's not. It's, they always say we just want to practice our religion as as we see fit. That's not it. They can do that. You know, they need an economic uh, infrastructure, and they need like um, schools and hospitals and roads, which they don't have now. So we need to. The whole world needs to to agree that it's in our it's in our interest to um, rebuild that society. And the only way we can rebuild that society is by cooperating with the Syrian government. Right now, we just want to bomb the thing.
0: Can I refine my answer to question 17 for just a moment? Um, I guess what I would say wipe out, I don't really have a lot of conviction around that. I do think letting ISIS have control of a, of a geog- geography, a caliphate, is a highly dangerous thing. Maybe Theo and I disagree on this. Um, where I agree with Theo, just talking to U.S. military people, is um, that... Uh, ISIS is just moving to um, the the border region where the Kurds aren't going to go. We're not going in. Uh, I don't know who's going to who's going to go to that new.
2: I mean, they're, they're very dangerous. New land. On the internet, you know, they, we can eliminate them on the ground, and they can still create videotapes that inspire attacks in Paris and London. So we want to eliminate that too. I mean, the the, the deep. We want to eliminate the next. They're, they have. You
0: think they have to have a place for the psychology to burn out?
2: Um, I know. I, I, I'm all for taking away the, the, the place, too. I think that's, if we can do that, let's do that. Um, yes, I, I, but that, you know, that requires an international investment of Arab-speaking military people on the ground on every street corner and buying back the weapons from the bad guys. And then peace will emerge. But it's, it's a huge investment of cash and goodwill from the international community. And yeah, the, the, then the, the big men with the big beards will have less power because they have fewer guns and they don't have the, the, uh, the space to operate. I'm all for taking that away, I agree. No, I, I think we're on the same page there. We don't want a caliphate. I, mean, I
4: think <laughs> the, what changed the equation on the ground was Russia entering into the airspace in such a huge way in September of 2015 with no notice. I mean, there was a Putin-Obama meeting at the UN and 24 hours later, the MiGs were flying. But was this was this a good thing in your estimation? I think it was a bad thing to the extent that the US was caught completely off guard. For us, for us. but For, for our ability to try to leverage a negotiated solution.
2: That's right. I mean, we, we withdrew from the battlefield. We said, whatever outcome happens, we are not going to be able to affect it in any way. But for the people of Syria, for peace in the Middle East, or at least just say Syria, the arrival of the Russians, um, Promoted peace, even though they came with warplanes. It stabilized the situation. Um, Do you agree or or not?
4: I'm not sure I agree with that, Theo, because the uh, intensive bombing, the civilian deaths, the hospitals that have been targeted by the regime Mm. in the last two years have just been uh, devastating. And I'm not sure how, I mean, I think a negotiated solution which has a path out for Assad, given what he has done, is in the end, the only viable solution because that population cannot survive or tolerate after the devastation of this war. But you, I, you know it far better from the I ground mean, Time I will tell, I suppose. But anyway, we're almost out of
2: time here. here I had up. one
4: question right here to close us up.
3: I have two points to bring up. Mm. Number one, I think it's amazing that you're here and you can speak and just by the nature of the title of this session, which is really supposed to be bullet points to give you about disappointment, uh, depression, uh, coming out of a bad place, the highs and lows, which I think it's gone off to politics and terrorism instead. And before it's over, I would like David to hear any more bullet points you might have for us, not only to deal with ourselves and our own disappointment setbacks and whatever else is going on in our head, but to hand that down to our children who are the most important things to us. Uh, And number two, Theo, I'm wondering if the government reached out to you because you are an amazing tool to bring to an end all the horror that is happening in this world. And don't you think that maybe possibly when we upset the apple cart of taking down Saddam Hussein, it spawned ISIS into creation?
2: Can, can I answer first because my my uh, answer will be quick and your answer will be better I think. Um, my my answer is the government reached out a little bit I think that they um, you know they have a lot more to learn about ISIS but then again so do we all and um, what your other question was what again is? Um,
3: well. Had they reached out to you to pick your brain? Yeah, a, l- a little bit,
2: a little bit. And I think and there's more to be done. And whether Saddam led to ISIS. Oh, I think right. it's a horrible mistake that we took out Saddam. David,
4: any so just, final words of wisdom? Oh, well, that's a high bar. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I'll just take a run of the question. Uh, so just that little narrow slice of it of uh, our children. Uh, I, it's just a grim... Uh, presentation of self to do this, but I think it is uh, so helpful to young people, to your own kids and all, for them to just understand that it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. And when they're in a down, it's not like an original moment. (laughs) They're they're not the first one to be down um, and life goes on. How many of us had trouble in the 40s and began to feel it lift a little bit uh, later on. It's good for people uh, to know that thing. I want to test one other thing. I'm thinking of another talk and let me, here's the basic thesis and see if there's agreement. I'm thinking that what I should do is continue to be really nice to people on my way up and then when I get there I'm gonna turn around and squash everyone. Directionally. Just
4: something, yeah. something different. Anyway, thank all of you uh, so much, but most importantly, thanks to David and Theo.
1: David Bradley and his colleagues at The Atlantic helped free Theo Padnos from his captors in Syria. Bradley owns Atlantic Media Company. Journalist Theo Padnos was held captive by the Al-Nusra Front in Syria. He was freed in 2014. Andrea Mitchell hosts MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell Reports and appears regularly on Nightly News, Today, and Meet the Press. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.